You are listening to The Future Slang, a podcast where you and I will discover and demystify the latest and upcoming innovations in science and technology that will shape our future and transform the world as we know. Listen to world-renowned experts talk about fascinating subjects and young icons share their radically innovative ideas and projects. Learn how to use these technologies to create a responsible impact in the world. This podcast is brought to you by Be Singular, an edutech academy that imparts critical future skills through an immersive and interdisciplinary set of courses ranging from artificial intelligence and virtual reality to iOS app development and game design. With B-Singular's courses on entrepreneurship, students are also prepared to be future techpreneurs. As some of you would have guessed by the name of today's episode, Could You Live on Mars? This episode is for all you space fanatics that watch hour-long documentaries on space. It will revolve around Mars and the discoveries in space and space technology that have made not just visiting, but inhabiting the red planet possible. Speaking of things that revolve around Mars, do you know how many moons the planet has? Well, Mars has two moons, Phobos and Deimos. Phobos, the bigger moon of the two, is slowly spiraling inward at the rate of six feet every century and it is believed that within the next 50 million years, it will either collide with Mars or become a ring of rubble around it. Deimos, on the other hand, is steadily drifting away from the planet. Have you ever wondered why scientists have been exploring Mars for human habitability out of all the other planets? For instance, what would happen if humans were to inhabit Venus? Let me give you a clue. Even the spacecrafts which have landed on the surface of Venus have only survived for about an hour before being melted and crushed due to soaring high surface temperature and an air pressure 90 times more than the Earth. Thus, it would be safe to conclude that Venus' atmosphere is hostile for humans. Scientists are exploring the past, the present, and the future of life on the red planet. Elon Musk, with his SpaceX Mars program, remains highly confident that he'd be able to land humans on Mars by 2026. Who knows, just a couple years from today, you'd be picking your clothes and packing your bags to travel to Mars. Let us talk to our guest on today's episode, Emily Lakhtwala, and learn more about space travel and how modern space technology has enabled it. Emily is a world-renowned planetary geologist, writer, and educator. I am so glad to welcome her to the podcast. It is such a pleasure to have you here. So, Emily, you are an internationally acclaimed science educator, and you also uh, encourage and proactively work towards a deeper public understanding of space and scientific discoveries in space. But as a child, I want to know what intrigued you and inspired you to pursue planetary geology. Well, I was always interested in science. Uh, As a child, I was practically raised by public television shows here in the U.S. that 
um, that promoted science, especially I was interested in, you know, dinosaurs and um, cosmology. How did we get here? Stars and galaxies and, and all of the kind of broad spectrum of exciting um, topics in the natural world and in the world beyond Earth that um, I was just really interested in. I loved science museums as well. I recall when I was a kid having a book that must have been published around 1981 or 1982, which was about the, um, the outer planets. And it showed the images that had recently come back from the Voyager missions exploring Jupiter and Saturn. And their moons were so surprising. You know, the planets were very pretty, of course, but the the moons of Jupiter and Saturn, each one was unique and different. You had Io with its volcanoes and Europa with its crisscrossing lines and Ganymede with its puzzle piece surface and all these great names and all these different worlds to explore. And it kind of overlapped with my interest in science fiction. And so I was always interested in, in space. I did read that you were a part of a space simulation program for fifth graders. So uh, tell me how these projects then, uh, how are they preparing students for introducing them to space? Well, I think that uh, simulation projects are a way, uh, when you do them with students, for them to imagine uh, their roles as scientists interacting with the natural landscape um, in a way that maybe... uh, a little bit more exciting than just, hey, you're out, you're going out in the field, you know, looking for the ages of these sedimentary rocks. No, you're exploring Mars, you're exploring the moons of Jupiter. And so uh, being able to do that with, with our fifth graders when I was a, a teacher was a, a fun way of um, getting the kids excited about seeing themselves as scientists. And that's a really important thing for children. Um, and when kids can imagine themselves as part of an adult role, then they can work toward it much more effectively than when it's just their parents nagging them to say, hey, you better get good grades in science. Yeah. So those kinds of simulation projects are a really useful educational tool. Uh, but do you think that schools, do you think they're able to use the tools and technology that we have in the field of STEM to expose students to, you know, such projects? Well, they can. Um, the you know, technology is changing so rapidly these days that if you were to try to teach, say, teach high schoolers, whatever is the current uh, in vogue coding language, um, and expect them to be able to use that language when they go into the workforce just a few years later, um, th- that language is not going to be the one that is being used anymore. The important thing is to is to have the students have practice with the concepts. So even if there's a different language that they have to learn, if you understand coding concepts, how to Um, you know, how to structure a program, how to debug it, how to comment it so you remember what you did the the first time you were going around doing your programming, those kinds of things. You know, if you learn good practices, then you will be able to apply them to whatever the world has changed into between the time you were in school and the time you're an adult. And that's absolutely correct. In order to ascertain that kids can uh, keep up with the pace of the changing world, Education needs to go beyond theory and memorizing, and it needs to be about understanding and adapting to what's new. Let's talk about your book. So your first book, uh, The Design and Engineering of Curiosity. This book was published in March 2018, and it's about the functioning of the robot. You also have a second book coming, correct? I began writing the book, and I immediately ran into the problem where I in order to explain the science that the rover was doing, I had to explain first how the rover worked. Um, And it 
was a struggle to try to put these two things together in the same book. I felt like I kept jumping back and forth. And finally, I realized that I was actually writing two books. I was writing one book about how the rover had been built and sent to Mars. The second book is on the science side. It will have to do with why the, this particular science mission was chosen, how the scientists selected their targets, what questions they were trying to answer. My main job as a science writer is to take the things that the scientists write and translate their very technical language into language that everybody else can understand. And that's excellent. So many people, so many students are interested in space but they find it difficult to keep up with quote-unquote rocket science. Uh, speaking of which, NASA's Perseverance rover landed on Mars in, on, in February this year. So uh, what are we aiming to discover with Perseverance? So Perseverance is it's a mission that looks very similar to Curiosity superficially, um, but it's actually quite a different mission. Curiosity took to Mars with it a... Um, a, a couple of very sophisticated analytical laboratory instruments. And it helps um, the scientists understand how long Mars kept its atmosphere, what the temperature was when these rocks were laid down, all that kind of stuff, uh, what, uh, what the depositional environment was, that there was this lake for a long period of time, um, that it was a very stable environment, possibly the kind of environment that could once have supported life. Perseverance has a sample caching system that is designed to that the rover drills cores of rock sample and stashes them in these hermetically sealed tubes and then it's then going to drop them on the ground for a future mission to come back retrieve and return them to earth so it's the first step in a sample return mission but really the perseverance mission is not going to become um, it's not going to achieve its potential until the time that we manage to grab those samples and bring them back to earth but why mars what is it about Mars that has made it the focus of most discovery missions, you know, and what happens if we're able to prove that there was once life on Mars? So those are two uh, quite distinct questions. So typically when um, a nation is first venturing out into space, you first go into Earth orbit. The next step beyond that, if you're interested in deep space exploration, is to go to the moon. India did that with the Chandrayaan um, orbiter mission. And then um, the next easier destinations to reach are Venus or Mars. Some countries have gone to Venus first, and some have gone to Mars first. And uh, Mars is interesting for its geology. It's interesting as a place that humans could one day live on because the surface conditions of Mars are not all that different from Earth. It's, it's like the most Earth-like location in the solar system. It's also because of its similarity to Earth, a place where life could once have originated. We don't currently have any evidence for there being life on Mars today or in the past. Um, and so the question we're asking is, is life there now? Did it ever start? And the reason that that question is important is because Earth and Mars in the first few hundred million years of the solar system, about 4 billion years ago, they were very, very similar. They both had rocky surfaces with weather, with snowfall, rainfall, um, rivers running into lakes. In science, you assume that if the starting conditions are the same, that you should have the same outcome. And so it should have happened on Mars. And so if we find life, then we can say, ah, yes, it should be extremely common in the galaxy. But if we go to Mars and we can't find any evidence for life, then we begin to wonder if Earth is somehow very special and if we are perhaps more alone um, than we would hope. 
And it would be very fascinating if you could finally conclude that there might be aliens. It would be. Let's see if we're lucky. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's talk about this month. Uh, four civilians were sent on the very first all-civilian orbital mission, Inspiration4. And uh, that truly reflects how far we've come as a race in bringing humans closer to outer space. More so now than ever, there are increased discussions on, you know, establishing a human colony on Mars. What are the various challenges in establishing a self-sustaining life? Now, there are a lot of challenges remaining. Recycling water, um, recycling other materials and making an environment that, that humans can live in over the long term in space. Creating, generating food in space. You can't bring everything with you. You need to grow things. Um, and just, you know, other problems of long term health. The low gravity has terrible effects on human um on their bones, on their skeletons, on their vision. And all of those things uh, are challenging even in the self-contained and controlled environment of a space, uh, you know, a spaceship. Once you get humans down on the surface of another planet, you have a whole host of other problems to deal with. You know, it's a long way from Earth. And so just being able to do all those things is very challenging, which is one reason why I think the future of human exploration is going to see humans remaining in self-contained environments in spaceships and using robots to explore other environments, not the way we do today with aut autonomous robots, but more in the way that of how surgeons can do long distance surgery using um, tools that they can access with their uh, human dexterity, but that are being controlled um, virtually, you know, through uh, through electronics. And that way, we don't need to stop at Mars. We can explore the surface of Venus. We can explore the surfaces of moons of the outer planets. You know, you can use the same idea to explore all of these different landscapes. And I think that's really the way, the way of the future. There is so much more to explore on such a fascinating planet. And mankind, I believe, is just getting started. So that uh, brings us to the end of the interview. I am so glad that you could join. And thank you so much for this very insightful session. Sure, good luck. And thank you. Your uh, questions were excellent. They were a joy to answer. With this, we've reached the end of the episode. Thanks for tuning in today and don't forget to listen to our next episode. On the next episode, we will talk about the two of your favorite things, sports and technology. The game's changing. Our upcoming episode will talk about many modern technological advancements that have revolutionized the sports industry. You can listen to the podcast on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts. You can also go to our website Be Singular Digital to check out more episodes or read our blogs on all things future. This is the Future Slang, signing off.